Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. And welcome back, Rabbis Hirsch and Rabbi Tatz. Last week we had a lot of fantastic feedback. People really enjoyed the duo dynamic. You left us at a bit of an impasse last week. If you could just briefly summarize, you were discussing the Ramchal and the controversy. So we left it really in 1732. Rabbi Emden has now entered the picture and he accuses the Ramchal of being a follower of Shabtai Tzvi, or perhaps more correctly, the writings of his co-conspirator, Nathan of Gaza, who, you may remember, was originally taught Kabbalah by Rav Moshe Chagiz's father, and the Ramchal is now being defined as one of them, as a part of that group that led the Jewish people astray. So, We know nowadays from the private correspondence between the Ramchal and his own teacher, Rabbi Bassan, that Rabbi Bassan was in fact concerned about the degree to which the Ramchal was familiar with the Kabbalah of Shabtai Tzvi and Nathan of Gaza. I'll quote part of his letter. He says, I find it, meaning your words, disturbing. This is Rabbi Bassan writing to the Ramchal. For that is one of the undoubted signs that the Mugid is in darkness to make Israel, the Jewish people, stumble. So the Ramchal's teacher is scared that the Ramchal is receiving his spiritual guidance from a very impure source and at that level of interaction that it would turn him into a heretic. You know, this is not a game for amateurs at that point. So he's saying that this Magid was a real thing whose job it was to almost plant false ideas into rabbis' heads. Or that the source is pure, but if the person isn't, that it is translated in a very negative way. And the Ramchal doesn't deny certain elements of it, because he writes back about Rabbi Nathan's Yehudim, in other words, the way Nathan of Gaza puts together the names of God. I will say nothing in writing but face to face. So he doesn't deny it, um, and he writes this on two separate occasions. Clearly, the Ramchal was an expert surgeon, so to speak, and able to extract the pure and the truth from within, possibly on guidance from above. And hindsight tells us absolutely clearly that the Ramchal remains on the very straight and the very narrow. In a similar way, we find in the same century the Vilna Gaon strongly fighting against Hasidus, yet in hindsight we see Hasidus manages to navigate the um, potential dangers of heresy. And we have to realize that throughout this fight the Ramchal is aware of what his activities are going to provoke. Uh, Had he not gone about this so purposefully, then less would have been known. But clearly and knowingly, potentially under the orders of the Magidim, he adopted a path 
from 1730 onwards of direct conflict. And many people nowadays don't realize that. They think it was just a series of misunderstandings, of miscommunication. I mean, to give you an example, he writes about the scholars of his generation, and I quote, How can you abandon the brightest light to satisfy your soul with grass? When the Shechina, the Divine Presence, waits for her sons to come and lead her out of exile. True, halacha is necessary, and we will set aside time for it, because it is indispensable. But we will not devote the lion's share of our time to halacha and Gomorrah. He also composed 150 Tehillim. The ones we have from David Melech are expressed in the feminine mode which in Kabbalah is compared to a lioness. In the future, there will emerge a masculine mode, that of lion, which is the tense that the Ramchal uses. So he's essentially saying that these writings of his could add or potentially supersede the Psalms of King David. And he's now also accused of confusing the people by pretending that the redemption was at hand. And these Tehillim are amongst those writings consigned to the books in 1730. We have seven of the Tehillim that he wrote because they were said at the inauguration of the Spanish shawl in Padua, which for those who have visited is round the corner from the Ashkenazi shawl. And it is in the Ashkenazi shawl that the Ramchal prayed. This was a tech on his very existence, on who he was. Why didn't he grab the opportunity to put in writing and deny the accusations? Well, the accusations really were at a point where the only way to prove your point of view was to sit down for a very, very long debate with people who were knowledgeable enough and prove to them that you have been given this mission, which would require at some stage an element of trust. Hmm. You mean as in the written word, it would seem even more questionable. Yes, from what the Magidim have told you, how do I know you are transmitting it Hmm. accurately? And by 1734, things came to a head. He leaves Italy altogether in October with an ever-present threat of snow. So he, his wife, his children father and brothers set off across the Alps and then had to follow that up by traversing the whole of Germany, exposed to the weather, to the risk of bandits, and they travel slowly because they are only venturing across open country when the conditions allowed. And the Ramchal sees these major events of his life at their spiritual core. Given that he knew his mission of publicizing this Torah to the generation, he saw his soul, his neshama, as being linked to the main teachers of Torah of the entire Jewish nation throughout history. Moshe Rabbeinu, Reb Shimon Bayachai, the author of the Core of the Zohar, the Ari, and he sees parallels in his life and their lives and writes about it. So, for instance, you know, Rav Shemabayachai spent 13 years hiding out from the Romans in a cave, and it is there that he authored the Secrets of Terror. Moshe was hidden from, from humanity, from everyone on Mount Sinai, and that's where he was privileged to receive Terror. 
so too the Ramchal was given his insights hidden away from the other scholars of the generation in order to continue that legacy because he is part of this very select and rarefied chain. His gifts were divine. And we must never lose sight of the fact that his Torah knowledge and teaching is uh, awesome, I suppose, is the one way to put it. And it's even in the smaller details. His name is Moshe. His wife's name, as we mentioned last week, is Tzipora. This is the same as the biblical couple, Moshe Rabbeinu. And he writes about this in the marriage document. So all of this forms part of his exile. And they arrive in in Frankfurt, the Jerusalem of Germany, in the early summer of 1735. And the Ramchal finds himself summoned before a rabbinic tribunal presided over by the chief rabbi of the city. And the Ramchal ends up signing a letter, which we have, which says as follows. From this day on, I accept upon myself, with all the severity of a cherem godel and nidui, in other words, excommunication, that I will not teach Kabbalah to any person or group, even the teachings of the Ari or the Zayar, and most certainly not what I myself composed, nor will I write or publish any such works. I reserve the right, however, if Hashem grant me life, that when I reach the age of 40, which he never did, to teach the known writings of the Ari to a God-fearing disciple, provided that they have reached the age of 42. And I pray that the Almighty will put an end to my difficulties. Signed, Tuesday, 17th of Teves, 5495, which is 1735, in Frankfurt am Main, Moshe Chaim Lutzata. And in the process, he had to hand over any writings that he had. In fact, in, in recent times, a letter from Rav Yaakov Cohen, the of Bezdin, was discovered, which describes what happened to these writings. Some of them were destroyed immediately, and the rest were buried secretly in a place known only to the rabbi and two of his assistants, and they disappeared. We do not have any of them. It's a tragedy. Imagine what was lost, but that is the decree from on high, from, from heaven. That's why we only have a third of what he wrote. Seems so strange that there was heavenly revelations to him, only to be buried till the end of time. Perhaps because the generation Wasn't didn't ready. accept it. Who knows? We can't work out these mysteries. Now, from 1736, the situation becomes quieter. The death of his teacher, Rabbi Bassan, and the illness of Rabbi Chagiz. He goes to Amsterdam and he spends eight years there and writes works that we are more familiar with, particularly the Masilas Yasharim, authored in 1740 at the age of 33. And then in 1743, he will move from Amsterdam to the land of Israel, to Akko. And it is assumed by many that he died in 1746, which is before he reached the age of 40, and assumed that he's buried in Tveria next to the grave of Rabbi Akiva. Are you saying he's not? Ah, so <laughs> it is true that he came to Akko, but Akko is outside of the borders of Eretz Israel proper, and anybody who died there was buried approximately two kilometers away in a cemetery which was within the borders of Eretz Israel, and that cemetery still exists, whereas Tveria is 
miles away. And even those two kilometers at the time took a number of hours to navigate. It was pretty much a, a barren wasteland. So the idea that they would have taken his body all the way from Akko to Tveria for no good reason. I mean, he doesn't write about it particularly. It's not totally impossible. It is improbable. Furthermore, common wisdom places his death, as I mentioned, in 1746, but he probably died a couple of years earlier, when he was 37 or 38, because the last safer and the last letter that he is known to have written was in 1743. Wow. Okay, so then he was Nifter, he died. What happened next? How did his legacy continue? So here we see God runs the world his way. Because when he dies, he doesn't die as one of the giants of the 18th century, virtually unremarked. Yet, by the time you come to the end of the 18th century, two individuals of great note from different walks of life praise him greatly. One is the Mezritra Mugid, potentially the main pupil of the Baal Shem Tov, who dies in 1772, so less than 30 years after the Ramchal, and he has already been rehabilitated by the Mezrich Magid, the leader of Hasidus at the time. And then the Vilna Gaon, who speaks very highly of the Ramchal as well. And that means that a transformation has taken place. He's now accepted. And by the mid-19th century, across the board, people are familiar with his writings. Between 1857 and 1867... Printers in six different countries produced 20 editions of his works, and the approbations are penned by the greatest people of that generation. The Masilasi Shorim is not just seen as legitimate, but of importance. And therefore, in Warsaw, between 1841 and 1895, they will produce 25 editions of Masilasi Shorim. So what happened? So... History has a voice, a vote, except that history doesn't normally vote that quickly. What did happen was that the Jewish world changed and his writings were now necessary to combat Haskalah and reform when they started making inroads into Orthodoxy. I'm not referring to his Kabbalistic works, but the works of ethics, of philosophy, of Jewish thought, etc. To put this statistically, in 1780, the Ashkenaz world was probably 95% Orthodox. 130 years later, that 95% is down to 40%. Over those 130 years, the Orthodox world was almost destroyed by various internal revolutions. And the Orthodox world now needs tools to make Torah meaningful and relevant. And of all ironies, I guess, the Ramchal's teachings fill part of that whole. And he's referred to as an Ish Ha'eloki, a man of God, a type of title that would have gotten him into trouble during his lifetime. It seems what you're saying is that because he died, we could almost pick and choose what worked for us out of necessity. So the Kabbalah bit, which was more controversial, mm, we almost... No, it's, it's not that way. Um, because subsequent to that, 
all of the Kabbalistic works are accepted. Mm -hmm. It's just that what was needed in the 19th century were other areas of what he had written. So you're saying it all just ended well? Well, there's one caveat, and that is his writings are reprinted, but he himself, his life, is almost airbrushed from history. In other words, we know of his Svarim, but we don't know about the events of his lifetime because it's too difficult to come up with the solution to what actually happened. Mm. You know, how did that work out? So how do we square the circle then? Was he right? Was he wrong? How do we? How are we supposed to remember him? Uh, so, <laughs> so wouldn't that be handy to be able to fit all the pieces together? <laughs> but when it comes to matters of faith and how God runs the world, it's important to understand that we are experiencing God's world. And that means that to us uh, finite mortals, not everything easily fits into a predetermined space. Because when you live on that level of the mysteries of Torah, you are fully aware that you don't understand God. And and even Moshe is told to be silent, the famous Gomorrah, when he asks a particular question, because there won't be answers to certain questions. And in the same way as we lost so much of his writings, because Hashkocha, because divine providence willed it to be so, maturity in Judaism requires the acceptance that actually... When we say God runs the world, what we actually mean is God runs the world. It's his. So nowadays we can, with certainty, learn his Svarim. Many great Chachamim from all backgrounds of orthodoxy have done so and scrutinized them. It's it peer review at its best and highly recommended them. But there remains the emphasis that the challenge of his views versus the views of the other leading Chachamim of the 18th century generation was not resolved. 250 years later, we can say that we actually haven't adopted his idea of emphasizing learning Kabbalah over other areas. And maybe that was particularly specific to the 18th century. You know, he had insights that we don't. We learn his Svarim, but we haven't adopted his Mahalachachaim, his approach to life and the various disciplines of Torah. And in fact, this was even seen not many years after he passed away, because we know that a Magid taught him Torah, a messenger from heaven. It's well known that the Vilnagon was also approached by a Magid, and he passed up on the opportunity. And he is also in that century. He is also the Vilnagon, an expert in Kabbalah. So one says yes and one says no, and both their writings are revered. All in that same general period of time, it seems to have been an era of divine revelation. Yet there are other Gedolim, famously Rabbi of Cairo, who wrote the Shulchan Aruch, who lived 200 years prior to that, and wrote an entire sefer called Magid Meshorim, which was either influenced or directly the result of teaching from a Magid. So the Ramchal felt that the world could change through Kabbalah, and he felt that negative powers held it back, whereas the other scholars felt that this change was dangerous and would have gone too far as it did with Shabtai Tzvi. And that's the difference of opinion. And we need to understand to what degree, perhaps I'll close with this, 
to what degree he saw ordinary activities through the lens of colour. I'll give you one example, which I came across recently. In 1720, Rabbi Bassan created an Eruv in the ghetto in Padua. If you visited, you'll know it didn't really require one. It was tiny. It's only a few streets. It was basically for outsiders carrying into the Eruv. Ten years later, the Ramchal writes a letter to his teacher praising him for the tremendous undertaking on behalf of Shabbos in the spiritual world because he writes that Rabbi Bassan's soul is linked to the sage of the Mishnah Rabbi Akiva, which he has heard from Magidim, and what he has done has achieved tikkunim, rectifications in the spiritual world. So even an ordinary exercise in halacha is seen by the Ramchal in a very different way. It's not to the exclusion of halacha. He never departs from halacha. But halacha is only the starting point, and it develops beyond that. Very unique. I mean, this has to be one of the only people in history, perhaps you can correct me, maybe there were many more, that was so controversial in his lifetime and no one would have dreamt what he would have become. He's a staple in every Jewish household and his life was fraught with controversy. Yeah. I mean, in the same century, you have Jonas Nobeschitz for another podcast. But yes, there are others as well. Well, thank you again, Rabbi Hirsch, for tying up the historical loose ends and really giving us as complete a picture as one can of the person and the history who was the Ramchal. And Rabbi Tetz, if I can ask you again to continue from last week's fascinating episode where you spoke about the actual writings as opposed to the person and give us some more of the Ramchal's ideas. Yes, thank you again. Thanks, Sarah Hirsch, again, for taking us through that latter period of the Ramachal's life and tying up those ends about um, his Sabbatean and anti-Sabbatean correspondence and how he's forced to defend himself, really a tragic personality. Such a young man, such a tragic history, cut short in many ways. But of course, as Rav Shapiro used to tell us, there is a Ashgocha, and I think Rabbi Hirsch referred to this Ashgocha, a divine providence in what we have of his even though we know uh, much of his material we don't have, and who knows how much more we might have had. And then he was cut down in an epidemic or a plague again before the age of 40, so just a star that shot through the firmament of Jewish history and Jewish literature and Torah. Yeah, let's turn our attention in this discussion. We spoke about the very abstract and Kabbalistic nature of the series. You know, Rabbi some people tell us that they like to hear new stuff, right? They like to hear new things. They don't like it when we talk about uh, stuff we've spoken about before. Well, I think we did our duty in the last podcast where we spoke about the Kabbalistic ideas of Tzimtzum and Sferis. I think they can hardly accuse us of not revealing some new material. Uh, let's talk this time about what is ostensibly a less Kabbalistic work of his, the Masilis Isharim. You know, we pointed out last time that he wrote an array of books, uh, a real polymath in Torah, polymath beyond Torah and a polymath in Torah. And he wrote widely disparate works uh, demonstrating great mastery of all aspects of Torah. One of them came perhaps the most famous, probably the most famous work, not, not the earliest by any means, certainly not the latest, but probably the most famous work of what we call Musa. Musa is that field that we translate in English as, I guess, character development or personality development, maybe. Hard to find the exact, exact word. But a field popularized in the last couple of centuries, most famously by Rav Yisrael Salanta, which is a field in which we study character and its nature and anatomy and its application 
rather than allowing it to permeate into our beings automatically. The original tradition in the Torah world was to study Torah, pure and simple, and it was guaranteed, understood to, and guaranteed to affect one's personality. Israel came along to teach us we're no longer on a level where pure Torah can improve us as people, unfortunately, and therefore we need to make a specific and focused effort on becoming better and more refined spiritual people and not trusting that will happen to us automatically. And so works of Musa now become, as the Rabbi Salant himself in his great work, <coughs> and his the commentaries on that by Ritzela Petterberger and, and others. So that has become the practice in the yeshiva world, almost all of the yeshiva world, that we actually, believe it or not, close our Gemaras for 20 minutes a day or half an hour, and we actually study works of character building in an effort to become better people. Some would say even that's not enough these days, and we are not all the best people that we could and should be. And of course, that is, that is true, but we strive. Now, one of the most classic works of character building is the Mesilat Isharim, a path of the just. This is, again, a work that the Ramchal wrote. I think he wrote it in his early 30s. This is a work that is an absolute masterpiece of clarity and logical construction in terms of how to approach building one's character, controlling one's character, refining it, elevating it, all of the things that Musa classically is. And that is the work that's probably most often studied as the paradigm, paradigmatic work of Musa. The Gon of Vilna, who of course lived at the same time, the Gon of Vilna was born in 1720. You heard from Rabbi Hirsch that the Ramchal was born in 1707, so their lives overlapped. The Gon of Vilna, who was an unfathomable genius, he actually, the story is put on his Shabbat clothes when he received a copy of the Masilis and he said he would have walked across Europe to meet the young man who wrote that work. He's also famous for having said that in a, f- a number of sections, the first sections of the Melissa he couldn't find one unnecessary word, not one extraneous right. word. So it's an obvious Torah masterpiece in which the words can be counted like the works of our early authorities that are shown him. Now this work is, the structure of the work is, it's an analysis or an expansion, shall we say, of a statement by Rav Pichas ben Yari that the Talmud quotes in which he lists 10 stages, ostensibly 10 stages of character building, very, very uh, naked, minimalistic expression of these 10. And what the Rav Chal did was basically expand them. So first he has an introduction, then he goes into discussion of what is man's purpose in the world, which he ends by listing the 10 qualities, quoting Rav Pichas ben Yari, and then he goes through a number of chapters opening up, discussing, analyzing, explicating each of these. And in each one, he follows exactly the same pattern. What is the meaning of this quality? How do you develop it? How do you avoid its pitfalls? And each of them, is the formula is exactly the same. Tremendously methodical thinker, 10 steps, each one analyzed in exactly the same form. So you get a very, very clear and logical framework on which to hang these things. Did he write this before the whole Muslim movement started? Oh, sure. Well, So it was almost with foresight that he knew the generations that could well be, indeed. He wrote this in the 1700s. He died in 1740, whatever it was, right? Born in 1707 and died in 17... Uh, he wasn't even 40, right? So that's when he wrote it. Rabbi Salsalant, of course, lived a couple of hundred years later. So, you know, Rabbi Salsalant, we class as part of the modern era. So it was more irrelevant when he actually wrote it. People managed to change their character traits through terror them. That was, that was always the approach, and that was the, that was the antipathy to Rabbi Salsalant's work. But nevertheless, this is the book most commonly taken to. Um, Rav Moshe Shapiro said something very interesting. He said that the Musa of Yisrael Salanta actually followed in three streams. He taught great and classic students, but 
three streams of thought came from him, right? Three streams. Slobodka was the one, Navadok was the other, and Kelm was the third. And three classic and gigantic students of Rishul Salanta carried those three streams forward, each teaching how to be an Adam, a man, a human being, in the correct form. And they founded their own schools, each one emphasizing his own stream of consciousness in Muslim Rome. Moshe once told us in Italy, actually, where we went one year with him to study the works of the Ramchal in Padua and Venice. Amazing, life-changing experience. I'll never forget sitting in the city square, in the city, the square of the Jewish quarter in Padua. Shapiro explained to us that the three streams of consciousness that came from Israel Salanta, each of them address a different pshat, a different understanding of what it means to be Adam. The word Adam has three classic interpretations, shall we say. The first is Adama, which means Adam comes from the Adama, which means man is a product of the dust and is built from the dust. The second is Adame, Adamel Elyon, I will resemble the divine. I will look to the stars and resemble that. Exactly the opposite take on what the human being is. And the third is Aleph and Dam that the Aleph, which is the spiritual letter, should have control and dominion over the dumb, which is the hot-blooded, the blood aspect or the, the, the animalistic aspect of the human being, right? Three touches, if you like, three understandings, interpretations of the word Adam. One, I will be, I am from the earth, Adama. Second, Adamele Elyon, I will resemble the spiritual world and the spiritual beings. Thirdly, I will take the Aleph and use it to control the dumb. Sedra Moesha, think about it for a moment. These are exactly the three streams of consciousness that came out of Rabbi Israel's teaching. What is Navadok? What is Navadok? To beat you down into the earth, right? To break your ego and to break the human pride and develop you that way. No vestige of ego should be left, right? You come from the dust and we'll return you to the dust in order to rebuild you <laughs> without ego. Adamele Elyon, you are a person of tremendous dignity and greatness and honor and glory. Adamele Elyon, that is Slobodka. Covered Adam, right? The greatness of the human being. You dress in royal fashion and you walk in royal fashion. On the contrary, we'll build you up to the stars. And Kelm, of course, what is the, what is the teaching of Kelm, Rabdesla, and all that approach? The teaching of Kelm is take the Aleph, which is the intellect, and use it to control the dumb anatomy of the soul and the spirit and the personality, root out the ulterior motives and the Vesta interests, use that cold Lithuanian head right, <laughs> to understand and dissect the personality and gain control, put the Aleph in control of the Dham, the Kelm school of Musa. Very, very beautiful. Fascinating. Yes, but back in the Ramchal's day, of course, he used this Brysa of Pinchas ben and he used those 10. Now, the 10 qualities that he speaks about in this uh, statement that the Ramchal explicates and develops for us, I'm sure our listeners are already beginning to realize, and I hope they are, that this follows from our last discussion. We spoke then about the ten spheres, the ten spherot. And here, strangely, we're talking about ten qualities of character. The first one, for example, is we, what we call Zahiris, caution. Be very careful in your, in your thinking and your work in the world. Keep away from what's wrong. Zahirut, be cautious. Hold back. The second one is Zrizus, Act with alacrity. Isn't that exactly the opposite quality? The third one is Nikius. Make sure that the combination of these qualities that you use is absolutely pure. There's no ulterior motives involved. Hmm, that sounds strangely like the first three qualities we began. Not in the same order, to be sure. We spoke there about Chesed, a tremendous outpouring, and Din on the left. Here they're in the opposite order. First you have Zahiris, the Din, the holding back, the limitations, the borders to, to human ego. 
And the second one we talk about is resist, get involved where it's correct, get out there with the rocket-powered energy to assert the positive qualities that you need to in the world. And the third one is a harmonizing between the two. When you put these two together, you're holding back from what you ought to. You're getting involved in what you ought to. Are you doing it purely, combining them well and correctly? That is very suggestive of the spheres. And indeed, if you look at these 10 very carefully, you'll see, although he never says it, because this is not a Kabbalistic work. So the Ramchal here talks about character, 10 aspects of personality and how you do them and how you avoid the pitfalls and what it means to be a prideful individual and how you control it. But lurking in the background of these 10, obviously, is the framework of the 10 spheres. One of the priceless gifts Rav Moshe Shapiro gave us was he once actually showed the framework of the 10 spheres and how each of these 10 qualities of Mercedes Shorim actually maps to those. If our listeners care, they can contact us. I'll show you a chart of that. Actually, you made it into a graphic chart. Perhaps we could post it on our site so that our listeners can, if there's a place on the JLE website where our listeners can actually download that, that, that'll be fine. If not, I'll give them a link to my own my own site, akivatats.com, where I can actually put it up if our listeners are very nice to us <laughs> and uh, perhaps make massive donations to the JLE, <laughs> then we can make the chart available. But what the chart shows is really three triangles, three triangles. In other words, these 10 are grouped into three sets of three, of course. The first three are left, right, and center. Left-hand side always comes first. Sur keep away from evil. That's called Zahiris, keep away. Don't engage what you shouldn't. Self-control. And that's the first quality in the ten. It's been said that all of Musa is self-control. Say that again. All of Musa, one way or another, is self-control. Either controlling yourself and keeping away from something you are lusting for, or self-control to get yourself out of your shyness and your reticence and move and do. But all of Musa is one or other form of self-control. And of course, that's the first quality we talk about here. Then we have this right-hand side. Don't hold back. Get involved. Rizus. You're not supposed to be an afraid, a person who's afraid to do anything and sits there locked into your... No, you hold back where it's appropriate, but where kindness needs to be manifest in the world. There you need to act with alacrity and with zeal, and therefore it's opposite quality. And obviously the third is, how do you harmonize these? And the, the tool you use to harmonize these is a pure mind to make sure that they're not all terimotors vested, the two are coming to you there correctly. That's the first triangle. And then the second triangle is higher than those, and those are three higher qualities, right? What's the pinnacle of the second triangle? Chassidus. Hmm, that's interesting. The first triangle is defined as doing what you ought to be doing in the world. That is, namely, self-control, acting where you should, and making sure that your motivations are clean. That we call being a tzaddik. The definition of tzaddik is doing what you ought to be doing. Tzaddik means righteousness. Righteousness means what the law requires. No more. What the law requires. Definition of tzaddik in Torah thinking, he who or she who does what you ought to be doing. No less, but no more either. That's called tzaddik. Beyond tzaddik, you have what's called chassid. A chassid, by definition, is somebody who does more than required. How do we see that? Well, the word chesed is a pure motivation to give for no particular reason. That's what chesed is. It's going way beyond what's required. No one's requiring in the first place. Olam chesed as we said last week. Hashem builds the world out of pure kindness. There's no need, not responding to a need. It is a pure going beyond all boundaries and all with no reason at all to motivate other than the motivation itself. So the second step of our, the second triangle of Masilis Yisharim is three elements that culminate in Chassidus, which is going beyond what is required. So step one is three elements. Let's make the map clear. 
three elements that all combine to make you a person doing what you ought to be doing. That's called being a tzaddik. Then we move beyond that. The next three are higher. They take you into the realm of being a chassid. Now you're a person who's doing more than required to do. Not simply making your wife a cup of tea when she demands it, right, because her husband has to, but making her a cup of tea even when she doesn't ask. That's going beyond, right? Doing acts of love that go beyond what a duty is. So the first level is fulfilling duties. The second is fulfilling a dimension of love, way beyond duty. And the third triangle culminates in what we call kedusha, kedusha, which is sanctity. That's complete transcendence. So you have three layers. One is doing what you ought to be doing, comprising three elements, as everything in the world comprises three elements. A journey always has beginning, middle, and end. Second quality, three things that conspire, add up to make you more than a person doing what you merely ought to be doing in the world. Somebody doing more than you ought to be doing, giving love, creating, giving back something to Hashem, more than He demands. And where does that take you if you get those right? To the third element which is the third triangle which culminates in Kedusha. I'm not going through all the ten here, I'm just giving a map. What, what is the tenth? Kedusha, Ruach HaKodesh, right? Tchiyas He goes into all those completely transcendent elements, right? Chasidus, Anova, Yiras, Chet, and Kedusha. The last one he limits, he lists here, is which brings you to the resurrection of the dead. But Kedusha is the pinnacle of the last three, namely something which is sanctity and holiness completely beyond the world. These ten steps can take you from an uncouth, unconstructed individual, firstly to somebody in line with your duties, then beyond your duties, and finally somebody blowing out of the world completely as a saint and a transcendent individual. Now, notice that these are three sets of three, because the ten spheres, we didn't go into this last week, are always a pattern of three, and therefore essential and logical that the relationship of each set of three is also the relationship between the three sets themselves. So it's a pattern within a pattern. And now the Ramchal doesn't say that. This is not a Kabbalistic work. He just gives you the practical. But anybody with any sense, and anybody who's read his other works, and anybody who knows anything about this series will immediately see that as soon as you come across the fact that they tend, should start bells ringing and alert you. And of course, it takes a great teacher like Rav Moshe Shabir to explicate it and make it completely clear. And therefore, the unifying theme that runs through all the Ramchal's works, obviously, is the deepest wisdom, which is the system of axioms. We call that Kabbalah. But it is really, as we said last in our last meeting, the spiritual chemistry that builds the entire world. So I'd like our listeners to know that when they next take a look at Masilis Yisharim, they should know not only that it's a practical guide to conquering ego and anger and, and, and all that stuff, but it's also a masterful ascent through a 10-step framework manifesting three sets of three, which is nothing other than the Kabbalistic pattern itself. Let, let me finish with this. Ramchal says elsewhere that the human being is built on three layers, and we referred to this last time. There's the gut layer in the lower part of the body. We call that nefesh, the animalistic soul. There's the chest central part of the human being, we call that Ruach, identified with heart and mind. And then there's the brain element, which is the spirit, the transcendent, clearly mapping to the same three that we've spoken about here. Indeed, in one place, he calls them quite astoundingly past, present, and future. The head dimension he calls past. Why? Because when I express myself to you in the world, there must have been a thought there beforehand that you never saw, that must have come first. And then I express myself in the world, that's the middle section of the body, which is life reverberating and resonating, heartbeat and lungs and, and breathing from moment to moment. That is my current experience of life in the world. That's the present tense. I sense myself in my chest where I am afraid or where I, these are my, and then of course we move to below the diaphragm, which is the future. 
reproduction, which takes me into the next generation, digestion, which enables me to live until tomorrow. So these are the three dimensions of past, present, and future. Therefore, once you've studied the works of the Ramachal, you will see that everything in the world is three things. The oneness of Hashem manifests in the world as three things, past, present, and future, left, right, and center, beginning, middle, and end, male, female, and unity between the two. The whole world is constructed in the same pattern, and therefore there's no way in the world that he would begin discussing a question like personality development without founding it on the same basic structure, which is indeed the structure of the divine in the world and the structure of the human being. Wow, thank you very much indeed, Rabbi Hirsch and Rabbi Tatz, for a fascinating double insight into the Ramchal, where we've heard all about him, his history, himself as a person, the controversies, and of course his writings too. I think it's fair to say that he was very deep and also very difficult to define, um, like someone with so many angles and, and facets of his being. Any final comments from, from either of you before we wrap up this special? So I just wanted to pick up on the idea of him being difficult to define, which you've just said. It, it isn't just because he fits into many boxes, as uh, we've mentioned, or in a way, no boxes. It's also the fact that we are not able to fully grasp who he was as an individual. We only have a third of his writings to go on, and we generally understand people through their writings. You know, they know contemporary biographies of these scholars and of course given that uh, many of his writings deal with Kabbalah since we know that he was taught by a celestial source we are unaware how much is his own input and how much is taught directly to him and Kabbalah almost by definition deals with what you could call opposing topics as Rabbi Tach mentioned, God is unlimited, whereas the physical world which God created is finite, yet uh, it contains elements of the divine which, which can't be divided. So these topics lend themselves to difficulty. I mean, if you just look at the very first statement of the Ramchals in, in Klach Pishe Chochma, the 138 gates to hidden wisdom, uh, the Ramchal makes two statements in the opening chapter. He says that we need to understand Yichud uh, Ha'insof, in other words, the idea that Hashem is the singularity of existence, yet also that all the fragmentation, the binyan that exists in this physical world, everything that is created, in other words, actually reveals the unity. And, and many of the following chapters deal with topics that seem almost contradictory. So it's therefore makes it more of a challenge to understand him. And if I may, without keeping either of you too much longer, I'd like to close with a story concerning the Ramchal, although not about him. About 10 years ago, we were with Ramesh Shapira Zatzal in Padua, the Ramchal's hometown, for a few days, including a Shabbos on a trip. Um, there is still plenty to see there, and uh, I was even able to get the group to uh, see some of the Ramchal's pieces in his own handwriting. And on Shabbos, Ramesha taught a piece in the Ramchal, which needs to be understood very clearly or would be uh, likely misinterpreted. 
And the, the subject matter was what is called Avera Lishma, doing something which is defined clearly in halacha as a wrong and forbidden, but doing it for a pure motive. So you can already understand the potential to misunderstand. And it was felt by a number of the people there that this was taught to us on Shabbos because there'd be no recording of it meaning that even 300 years after the Ramchal wrote, we need to approach his writings, especially in areas of Kabbalah, with uh, care. I think uh, you've both pretty much said it all. So thank you very much again for that. And thank you, Rabbi Tetz, for taking the time to come on this special. Rabbi Hirsch, now that we're wrapping this up, I'm assuming you have a plan for the next couple of weeks, now that we're finished with the Ramchal? Yes, we're going to be doing a two-part series on Pesach, um, counterfeits, war, uh, various other. I was going to say we, we know we know the history of of Egypt and the. Yes, <laughs> now we, we'll start a lot later than that. Fantastic! Thank you very much indeed. As usual, any um, feedback, comments can be sent to podcasts at jaily.org.uk. We'd love to hear how you um, enjoyed this unique special, and there will potentially be more. Thank you for listening, and see you next week. <laughs>